The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I'm Bill Amadeo from, you know where I'm from, not Atlantic City, New Jersey, from McMadison Amadeo and Gravel Associates and Sex. Oh man, I feel like um, three weeks ago somebody like pushed me down a hill and I just keep going. Luckily, I'll murder prelim till 8.15 tomorrow, so I'm good. Plenty of time to, uh, unwind. Wait, you guys aren't gonna take me serious. Hold on. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Now you know I'm intelligent. Thank you. Anyway, we are going to talk about people you may know. And I gotta be real, I've been sleeping maybe four hours a night. It's been nonstop work, nonstop trials. And we're going to discuss these people. Let me tell you, I've been told the first 10 people under people you may know are the people that are stalking your profile. And God damn it, Facebook, I know them. You got me. So. Filters off, exhaustion's in, have not stopped working. Put the glass on so you think I'm smart. Football in so I'm still keeping it real. Crazy list. Let's do this shit. I will not mention names. Not gonna get sued. Had enough of that already. Number one, a cousin I can't stand. Yes, I do know him, Facebook. I'm going to give a blurb about each one of these people. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. To my cousin that likes to stalk my profile now, I appreciate your support. I know it sucks because you want to borrow money. Thanks, bro. (coughs) Number two. An ex-girlfriend from law school. In fact, two, three, and four are all ex-girlfriends from law school. And I'm going to give a little blurb on each one without mentioning their names. Number two. Some of you may have heard me talk about this person in other lives. You know, she left me for somebody who was 30 years older back in the day. Her husband had a lot of money. And he always invested in pharmaceuticals. I know what she always told me about him after we left. She left me for him. So I will say, the fact that they have two children now, it's very clear that he invested in blue pills. Are they going to get that? (laughs) Oh, God. Anyway, number three. Another ex-girlfriend from law school. (laughs) So, this one. Yes. Nancy. (laughs) I did say little blue pills. (laughs) Number three, if I may, if I was to rudely interrupt it. Another ex-girlfriend from law school. This one used to tell me how I was working too hard in law school. How I need to unwind more and I studied too hard. She never made it through law school, by the way. This is one of the first girls I ever knew was cheating on me. And we had a very weird conversation my fourth or fifth term of law school. She came up to me. And she said... I'm sorry, B. I've been cheating on you. And I had this look on my face like, <gasps> and she's like, you're shocked, aren't you? I'm like, I am. She's like, I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm not hurt. I'm just shocked. And she could let that go, right? Now, let me tell you, when I went out with this girl, I really was very fixated because she had such a good heart. This person is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. 
But I never found her physically attractive. You know that person you go out because they're just so nice, but they don't like that fire underneath you? Well, this one, she was cheating on me. And the guy she was cheating on me with, he wasn't a knockout either. So she wouldn't let it go, right? She goes, why are you so shocked but not her? I said, I'm sorry. You are the least attractive woman I've ever dated, and you're cheating on me. I'm stunned. I mean, if you were hot, I would understand it at least, but this is ridiculous. I didn't go over well. She took like, a thing of coffee and threw it on my secure transaction books. And... But she is out there, under an assumed name, stalking my profile. You can change your name, but it's still your face. You're still posting pictures of you and your husband in the profile. The guy you ironically cheated on me with. So while your name may be something, you could say anything you want, but it's still you. Facebook's catching on to this shit. <clears throat> Number four. <clears throat> Another ex from old school. <laughs> this one told me I was never going to make it as a lawyer because I worked too hard in law school. I hope the medication is wearing off. <clears throat> Number five. Well... <laughs> Shiawasi likes to come alive on Facebook. And this is a crazy person who has like 12 different profiles. And they are stalking my profile and sending weird messages. We all know it's you and do you know why? Because you're friends with all your aliases on Facebook. My God. Do people not know how to catfish anymore? Jesus. Number six. Another Shiawasi person. Why I, too, am wearing glasses, I will not put on a bow tie. <laughs> oh, hey, Mayor Ken. <clears throat> Number seven. A sister of a former client of mine. This is an interesting person. <clears throat> she offered to negotiate her brother's fees for trade. I end up blocking her because that was just a little crazy for me. Maybe she's connected to number six. Number eight. <clears throat> a prosecutor I can't stand. I mean, this person and I, we literally hate each other. It's like that passionate hate. We were probably best friends in our life or something. This guy's a complete asshole. But he's stalking my profile. <clears throat> Let me help you with something, guys. If you're going to stalk people's profiles and you are not friends with them on Facebook, here's what you can't do. You can't like their photos at 3.12 in the morning. Because in the middle of the night, when you get up to use the bathroom and get a drink of water, and you get that notification that an arch enemy is liking your photos, that's a clue they're stalking your profile. And I gotta tell you, dude, the profile, the picture you like, that is... Let's just move on. Profile people you may like number nine. An attorney general who hates me with a passion. The feeling is mutual. And knowing that this person often stalks my profile, I do these lives not only for the entertainment of my friends and for the podcast, but I want this person to know just how goddamn crazy I am when you go up against me. Profile number 10. An enemy from high school. I just want to say something. In high school, you got more girls than me and you were more popular than me. And as I looked at your profile after you were looking at my profile, I want you to know something. DS. Seeing how you look today and what you're doing with your life, there are no hard feelings, man. 
I hope you enjoy that 15 minutes of fame. And by the way, man, even though we're in our mid-40s, don't you worry. That cover band's going to make it just yet. Keep it up, bud. Okay. Well, I am exhausted. I know I'm talking shit. We had a prelim in the morning. Um, trial, trial, trial. And I'm in my finest clothing, obviously. Hand hurts. Mental stability lost. Exhaustion kicked in. I want to thank the people that are stalking my profile. I hope you like what you see. I've been working out. Got the intellectual look going. Intellectual at top. Street and bottom. Like the old mullet, right? The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. It's been a weird day, right? We, we lost power. I've been in trial after trial. I have a trial on Monday, a prelim Thursday and Friday. I'll try to sleep somewhere in the middle. Haven't been able to work out in a couple weeks. We do have SummerSlam next week, so I'm looking forward to that. Joe, back on Adam. I want to start tonight with a question. Because I got a lot of people I care about going through a lot of shit right now. You know, energy is sad. When we grow up someplace, is that place always a part of us? And I think back to 2007, because in 2007, I was fairly certain I was going to like the world on fire in New Jersey after passing the Jersey bar in 2008. And then you come to this realization, and the realization is this. I had to pass the Jersey bar for finality. I hated Jersey growing up. You know, being a white kid in the ghetto sucked. Moving to the suburbs wasn't much better. And I think sometimes we got to get away from our comfort zone. And it's weird when we say comfort zone. Because when we say comfort zone... It's more like this product of learned behavior, right? Because what your comfort zone is may be something that doesn't make you comfortable at all. Think about that. I'm going to reflect on this one year in law school. And the topic is deaths and breakups and study groups and softball. And I'll make it come full circle. And I am exhausted. So if I'm coming off a little off tonight, I apologize for that. But I got to get more content done. But the year was weird. 2007's year, mom passed away. And mom dies while I'm in law school. And my mom was like a big sister to me. She had me very young. And yet Mare was more like the mother figure. And I had to come home and make those decisions while in law school. And I think it was one of the few times in my life I was really openly vulnerable. You know, and I turned to friends. I turned to people. And nobody seemed to give a shit, to be honest. And it kind of made like this harsh exterior and I learned during the death of mom, and I would revisit with the death of Aunt Mare, I was going to go the opposite way with things. When somebody was in need in that critical stage, I was going to be there for them. I remember nobody being there for me. And I remember going to Kathleen Dunn, my advanced writing professor, and I said to her, hey, I got to go home and bury my mother. Can I have a one-week extension on my advanced writing paper? And you know what she said to me? I don't like to give extensions for anything. 
And I remember finishing that paper in Scott Zolber's law office with tears pouring down my face, thinking about mom. And, uh, and now Scott's going too. And I guess what I take from that is life is way too short. My Uncle Sam once told me, if there's five people in this world that truly give a shit about you, you're lucky. And I know people want me to win cases for them and do this and do that, but how many people do you really say are in that inner circle? How many people, when someone's dying, are going to stop what they're doing to help? And I didn't really find that. And, um, you know, mom dying during law school kind of put a lot of things in perspective. And it made me think about things. And I think in some weird way, mom's death led me to Michigan for life. Because my mother was never happy in New Jersey. She just wasn't. But she would never leave. And... I think there's a lesson to be learned here, right? If you're not happy somewhere... Change is the biggest fear factor in the world, right? It just is. People are terrified of the unknown. And I think people rather eat shit than risk what could be something amazing. Because if eating shit is what you know, then you keep eating that shit. And I look at Mom and Aunt Mare, two great women, two women I owe everything to, I could never repay. They were never happy in Jersey. With the thought of leaving that situation wasn't going to happen. And when mom died, it put a lot of things in perspective for me. Do I really want to go back to Jersey? What is there for me? Can I create happiness in the something? And you know, guys, when you get to that situation... When you have to create happiness instead of just having it be there, that's fucked up. We could always convince ourselves a situation is good. But it takes balls to say, you know what? Let's just be real about shit. And for me, being real, I came to the conclusion I'm going to try to make Jersey work. I'm going to pass the Jersey bar just to stick it up people's ass. And I knew it wouldn't work. I would give it one shot for Aunt Mare. Then I was going to come back to Michigan and start a journey. And people looked at me like I was crazy. And you'll learn this in life, guys. When you take chances, when you do it, you're crazy. And if you make it, you got lucky. You cannot prevail in the eyes of the naysayers. So don't try to. Fuck them. I don't know. And what I've really learned tonight as I'm prepping for this trial. What I've really learned tonight, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't love Jersey. But as I get older... As I reflect, there are so many things about Jersey that are a part of me. And I'm trying to compartmentalize that. The teams I watch. The food I like. The shows I am hooked on. The music I listen to. Let me tell you, you give me Gaslight Anthem... I'll take that over most anybody. And that is so goddamn Jersey. And when I've come to this conclusion tonight with total exhaustion, is this. Where you come from, 
even if it's not right for you. You could take pieces of what you learned and enjoy and transport them somewhere else. Doesn't mean you have to be engulfed by it. And it kind of hit me tonight as I'm blasting Jersey music. And I was watching Chase and Amy the other day. My God. I'm more Jersey now as a Michigan guy than I ever was when I was stuck there. There's things about Jersey I can enjoy now without being part of it. And that is so weird, because when you are from Jersey, it's like a badge of honor, this badge of courage, if you would. And really, I mean, I think Jersey's an asshole state for the most part. But, um, I learned about myself tonight, and it was fascinating. Maybe reflect on this year, and I think it all started with mom's passing. Burying mom was brutal in law school. Brutal. And I felt like taking my shot on something different in some way was going to honor her. Because I think if mom and Aunt Mare would have taken their shots, they would have been happier. I know I always made them happy, but their surroundings made them sad. And you know, now that I'm in a situation where I could do anything in the world for them, they're not here. And life's just fucked up sometimes. But... I know they're watching. I hope they're proud. And I feel like... In my darkest times, I wish I could pick up the phone and call Amir. And while I know she's there, she's not physically here. And that sucks. I also don't think I'd be in these situations if I was close to her towards the end. And I think life in the universe plays these weird games with us. I really start going back to 2007 and an exhaustion trial prep tonight made me think, whoa. Shit. It's okay to embrace some of that and still maintain your identity. I think life's about balance. And that leads me to breakups. You know, back then, <laughs> there's some humor coming here. There was this one girl. And, you know, and I thought she was the one. And we've all been there, right? She's the one. And she was New York. I was Jersey. And we were two inner city kids. And we were going to make it together. And, yeah, do our thing. And she looked like the pretty girl from Jersey. Just it. She'd get the big hair going, put those Jersey glasses. New York, New Jersey, and the Philadelphia area, PA, they had this sense about them. They had this feeling that just comes across the screen, right? And as a kid growing up with that, I mean, that's your version of beauty, right? Yes, but she's a very pretty girl. But she was poor growing up, as was I. And we had this plan. The plan was we were going to make it together as a team. We were going to be this power couple and dominate the New York and New Jersey area and all that happy horse shit. <sighs> yeah. And then she went to her externship in New York. And this is one of the lessons of life. Life deals you a lot of poker hands, right? And thank God it didn't work out with her because Kara would have never come to the picture and other experiences I've had along the way. But Kara was clearly the one. But this girl, I viewed her as the one back then. And she went to New York. And she was the hot little thing in the office, and very wealthy guy, 30 years older than her, took an interest in her. Of course he did. And she ended up with him. I remember her mother saying to me, this is all the same year, by the way, he is our Manhattan Shore thing, and you are our Atlantic City crapshoot. what I took from that was huh well I misread the situation 
I thought we had a plan. But I didn't want to be with somebody who didn't want to be with me. She wanted the quick money. And it stings at the time, right? I mean, let's just be real about shit. The ego gets bruised. Somebody picks somebody else over you. And you could argue about it and say, okay, I'm better than this person. I'm better looking. I got more upside. I got this. I got that. Fuck that shit. They don't want you. Fuck them. Move on. And go get somebody who's worthy of your time. And the thing about her, there was this really deep connection, at least I thought so. I remember trying to call her when um, mom died, because I was down out. And she was just in her own world, doing her thing. And I learned a lot about that. Learned a lot about myself during that situation. And you know, there was that one goddamn song. It's a good song. You remember that song, Hey There, Delilah? It was really big at the time of the breakup. And that was kind of like our song, because she was in New York City, and I was in Michigan, and a thousand miles away, the happy horse shit. Remember one night, picking up some drunk friends. I was working late in the study room. Some friends called me drunk. I didn't want them driving. And they popped in that song. And this was a Jersey group. And one of the things we do in Jersey is we change lyrics to song. It's a common theme. And if you're a Jersey kid, you know what I'm talking about. And the guy she left me for, his first, his name was T. That was his nickname. He went by T. And you know that song, Oh, It's What You Do To Me. They would change it. Oh, It's What She's Doing To T. And it kind of broke the tension right there. But I learned a lot about myself during that relationship as a kid. And that year was about growing up. It was about dealing with loss. The loss of mom was a pain that would never leave. The loss of her was a temporary thing that would heal relatively quickly. But there's loss combining. And I really, during that time period, I locked in on these study groups. And the way I've always dealt with pain and loss is I throw myself into my work. It's just something I've always done. And I will tell you, the study rooms at Village Green, the study rooms at the Cooley Center, commerce rooms up there, and the study rooms in the Cooley Library, they were salvation to me. I'd be there in the morning, I'd leave at the closing bell, and the Sean Colbriffs and people like that that were there, they know what I'm talking about. When you were at Cooley, forget about grades for a minute, because grades are overrated, and I did fine, but we knew who was going to be successful by who was going to be willing to burn the midnight oil. Who was going to push the envelope? And the workers were the ones that have succeeded. The ones that it came easy to haven't done much. But the field of law helped me deal with the grief of my mother. And I just always have found comfort in work. When life threw curveballs, I could just lock myself into a law book. And that was like my Bible to what strong Christians believe. It was just something about the book. It's about reading a statute and breaking it apart that was always sacred to me. And it was the strongest amount of therapy you could ever hope for. And the last thing that happened that year was I went back on the baseball field. The thing about baseball was a bitter pill, but it was something I had to give up to work for my family. You know, and when you give something up prematurely, something you love, you always wonder what if. And I know people will tell you, some people will tell you I was a great ball player, some people will tell you I sucked, and it depends what asshole's watching, right? 
baseball to me was an escape from the violence of Ducktown. And when I went back on the softball field, because that's where baseball players go when they can't play baseball anymore, I just remember being in the batting cage and dealing with the grief of mom. Being able to study all day and then hit balls for an hour, it was special. And I look at baseball and lol as my versions of sanity and success. So it will always be sacred to me. The beauty of the baseball diamond, guys, doesn't matter who your parents were. Doesn't matter what your social economic status is. All that matters is when you go on the field, what those nine players are capable of doing, or softball those ten players. And I found peace and equality there. And I will say that law school and softball got me through the death of mom helped me realize I had to be somewhere different in life and certainly maybe minimize a relationship that wasn't worth maximizing in the first place and I guess what I want to say tonight because there's friends out there that are hurting right now and I, I, I get it and I want to be there for all my friends. I pride myself being one of those five Uncle Sam talked about. But to those people out there that are hurting, I do love you guys. Sometimes you gotta run through a third baseman's holdup, third base coach's holdup. What I mean is this. When you're on second base and there's a single to short right center field, sometimes you just got to put your head down and run through the side and take your shot to score. What you don't want in life is to be stranded on third base when you were in a tying run your team loses. And that's as simplistic as I can make this right now without getting into specifics. To those people, I love you, but I'm telling you this, if you continue to punch, there are good things ahead. You don't have to eat shit sandwiches, because that's one of the goddamn menu. Change the fucking restaurant, man. Do you. Take a shot. And when you take that shot, sometimes you will fall flat on your ass. But you gotta take the shot. Because the possibilities are endless. And to not explore that possibility, that's a true tragedy. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Here's a fun fact about Scott Grable. Maybe you don't know. And I didn't notice. Did you know that The 40-Year-Old Virgin was a biography about Scott Grable? I, I, I was shocked. Steve Carell killed the Scott Grable character in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. So, Scotty, glad to see you get over the hump, buddy. Anyway, today, now that we're done bashing Scott Grable for being the star of The 40-Year-Old Virgin, I want to talk about three things today, and these were different events, festivities in my life, because people keep asking me different stuff. The first tour when I was 18 years old. I'm going to tell you. 18-year-old Bill Amadeo. That was some weird stuff going on there. You're poor. You're in the ghetto. You're going to community college. You're a bar porter at Tropicana. The first event is going to be a banquet. I was a bar porter at Tropicana. The second is when I had a brief stay in the theater group at Atlantic Cape Community College. And then the third thing is going to be a dean's list party. 
Pat Cooley. Fascinating stuff, yeah. Let's kick it back to the year 1995. I am an 18-year-old bar porter. And as a bar porter, what that is, is basically a busboy for the bartender. You would cut the fruit, set the ice, get the glasses together. I am working full-time, going to college full-time. And it kind of sucked. Um... <laughs> Oh, good to see Grable and Associates is chiming in. Scott, did you get up yet? You sent me to jails at 5 in the morning. I wasn't sure if you got up yet. You usually don't get up before noon. Good to see you up, bud. So, I'm an 18-year-old bar porter, and the nerds are playing at Tropicana. Let me tell you about... Let me tell you about the nerds. There were two really famous by New Jersey standards, local bands. There were the Nerds, and there were Fuzzy Bunny Slippers. If you were a child of the 90s, you know, of New Jersey, you know the Nerds or Fuzzy, Fuzzy Bunny Slippers. And we're at this party at Tropicana. I was in school all day. Now I'm getting ready to bartend. Carl Rutledge is the bartender. May he rest in peace, but Carl Rutledge was a demanding bartender he had to have your fruit cut a certain way and your ice this way he would always lose the ice scooper he was a pain in the ass he'd come in and work for an hour get paid for eight and he was kind of like the real grinder on this whole bar porting thing and the band's amazing but what really sucked what really sucked for me was this night the nerds are playing, and I'm a nerds fan, because we were all nerds fan back then, right? I mean, I know you weren't there, live audience, but if you were a kid in South Jersey, this was the band you wanted to see locally. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm bar porting, well, cool. I will be able to... <laughs> you know, Scott, can you please just shut up? I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be able to watch this band, make some money, do my thing. What happens? Well, as luck would have it, there's other people my age at this event. And here come the Margate Kids. And the Margate Kids in 1995, playing with the nose candy. And I'm going to bash Margate right now. Skynet will offend you. The rich assholes from South Jersey would come to the casino with their fake IDs, not tip you as they get their drinks, use their little nose candy, and here they are at their own summer break while I'm going to community college, and they're all kind of mocking me, oh, you're a bar porter, how great is that? And I'm sitting there in my Tropicana uniform serving drinks to these assholes, I'm like, you know, one day you pieces of shit. And you're trying to enjoy the music. And the nerds were kicking ass. They were killing it. But your night's kind of spoiled. Because the people you can't stand that you knew from high school. Remember that separation? The rich versus the poor. We were poor back then. They're all there ordering drinks for you with their fake IDs. And it really sucked. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be a way out. You know, and I'll say, I learned more behind the bar than I ever learned studying for the bar exam. Let me be very clear on that. Life experience is fascinating. It was more valuable than those books. We'll get into those books later. And as I'm watching the women of South Jersey, and let me tell you about the girls of South Jersey in the 90s. Pretty girls, big hair. When you think Jersey girl, that's what was there. And I noticed that all the good-looking girls were there with either members of the band or local lawyers in the area. Now, you're studying this, right? You're thinking, huh. Well, I know I'm going to play in a band or go to law school at some point. <laughs> I was inspired by that night 
bar porting at the nerds to start my own band. And the famed band was called No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. It was me and four of my friends. And let me just tell you something. And I learned this the hard way. If you are a straight edge guy who's not a good singer and is a bit of a bookworm, you are probably not going to make it as a rock star in South Jersey. The nerds explained to me I was really a nerd. So, no good deed went unpunished was an epic fail. They really got a hang of those little books. And I just remember being so friggin' motivated. All these assholes are at my bar getting their drinks. I'm cutting the lemons. I'm doing the ice. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I know, I know you guys are laughing about no good deed goes unpunished. That was the name of our band. It was very, um, it didn't work, you know? Um, it just didn't work out, you know? We sucked. We got gigs. And people were really... Let me tell you. When you are a lousy performer in South Jersey, people get hostile. We are not tolerating that shit. Remember, like, being on this bus, going to, like, this dive bar. I was the singer of the band, Aaron. And if you heard me sing before, you know that's not good. I also had some dance moves that didn't work out well. But, um, yeah, we, we weren't good. But, uh, well, I knew that night, though. Okay, let me be clear. The guys that were in the band and the lawyers were getting the good-looking girls. I had to achieve one of these things, right? I'm pissed off at the Margate assholes blowing their coke and stiffing me at the bar. I'm sick of cutting these goddamn lemons. It was either read a book or sing. All right. The singing thing that was a horrible fail. Epic. It really was horrible, man. I I can't sing. Um, you know, people say, ah, all you need to do is get drunk. Well, I don't drink. So, didn't work out. The Nerds were a great band, though. And th that night was a motivator for me. While at Atlantic Community College, ACC, where I went, because, you know, you went to ACC because, number one, you know, I was going to play professional baseball. And I was going to start a community college. Yeah. My baseball career, as Scott Grable will tell you, rivaled my singing career. Yeah, I, um, I wasn't good at hitting the curveball. I tried. I tried. Something about being dyslexic and a pole moving didn't work well. I mean, I got away with it for years. It worked really hard, but it just, no. But I started going to community college to play travel baseball, and I'm, so I'm playing ball, I'm taking 16 credits, I'm bartending at Tropicana, and I decide, what the hell, let's try the theater. Now, the people in charge of the theater at Atlantic Community College in the 90s, how do I put this without hurting too many feelings? Let me tell you who was involved. Because I was a writer for years, and this is no offense to writers. Josh, if you're watching, this is no disrespect. But writers can be a weird group. Writers and theater people hanging together at community college. And there were two potential films we were going to do. One was Guyana Tragedy. That was a movie about the Jonestown Tragedy that Powers Booth played in 1980. And the head of the theater department really liked Powers Booth. He was on this whole Powers Booth kick. Or the Caucasian Chalk Circle. They went with the Caucasian Chalk Circle. And the Caucasian Chalk Circle, if you ever watched it, 1948 German film, was about a peasant woman that becomes an amazing mother. I won't bore you with the details. It sucks. And I played the role of a peasant. Which, they say, you nailed it. Well, <laughs> I was a poor kid! Yeah, I, I hit it out the park. Um, with that being said, these people were really arrogant. 
you know? I mean, and this is a different time for me. I'm 18 years old. I'm learning that older cocktail waitresses like me. I'm in between two worlds, and I'm seeing these geeks in the theater eating their cheese and crackers and sipping on $10 bottles of wine like they were high-end, like they were conquering the world's problems. But remember something. We're at community college. We are bottom of the barrel. So to me, it was a motivator. What I learned from some of these other people is they, this is what they aspired to be. Everybody in that group wanted to be a big fish in a small pond. But what you learned as you're going to these rehearsals is that they were small fishes in a tiny pond. And one thing led to another. Um, I was working a lot. And the casting director, yes, the casting director at Atlantic Cape Community College, they said to me, you have to make a decision. You either have to quit working at Tropicana or dedicate yourself to the theater. This wasn't a hard decision for me. As you may know, we were living in the hood. I would buy my first house a year later. And shockingly, Tropicana paid a lot more than the theater group at Community College. And uh, I bounced to work. And the casting director said to me, that will be the greatest mistake you ever made, quitting this and going to the workforce. That casting director is still there today. Obviously, she's lit the world on fire if she's at Atlanta Cape Community College in 2023. I mean, only the best in performing arts go to Atlanta Community College. See what I did there? Okay. So, <laughs> let me preface how exhausted I am. Let me just be clear about that. Because the weirdness is coming out, right? All right. A Dean's List party at Cooley. This is years later. You know, at Cooley... Cooley Law School was an interesting place. We all went to Cooley because nobody else wanted us. Let's be clear about that. Now, many of us got into other places and we stayed because we wanted the bullshit that Cooley was a family. Cooley's not a family, man. I remember Cooley trying to destroy my tutoring business. I remember Cooley not giving me a $15 an hour job in the register's office. Now Cooley is gracious enough to send me requests for donations. Thanks, guys. Can you break a nickel? Um, with that being said... When you made the Dean's List at Cooley, it was time to party. And let me tell you what that meant. You got to go to an event where some Dean would preach to you how you are the best and the brightest. Well, if you got a 3.0 at Cooley, obviously you're ready to set the world on fire. Let me tell you the journey of law school and law, okay? Because it's a little bullshit. They don't teach you how to be a lawyer in law school. They don't. It's a misnomer. And Aaron Abera, if you decide to go to law school, you'd be an amazing lawyer. I will help you with the reminder that you're just using this to take the bar because it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. The system they do in law school is all bullshit. You get the grades in college to take the LSAT. You take the LSAT to get into law school. You get the grades in law school to take the bar exam. You then take the bar exam, and then nobody teaches you shit about how to practice law. It's a $150,000 Ponzi scheme. I said it. It's bullshit. Let me tell you, being a good lawyer means getting your ass to the goddamn jail at 5 o'clock in the morning. Yes, I haven't lost that. I see these lawyers, like, when they start making money, well, they're not going to do that anymore. Well, that's what got us the money. That's what brought us there. Don't lose who you are, unless you were faking it to begin with. And you're with all these assholes at these Dean's List parties. And I'm sitting there, like, this is a bunch of geeks, right? And the worst part is they're geeks that couldn't get in any other law school. So they found their niche. This is the big fish, small pond shit. And they're talking about their grades, how they're going to light the world on fire. Let me tell you why I got good grades in law school. Let me be very clear about this. Here's what I knew, because I think grades are highly overrated. I trained myself to be amazing at multiple choice and essay writing for one reason. 
Scott Grable, shut up. I knew if I did well enough in law school, I could sit for the bar exam. And if I could sit for the bar exam and pass, I wouldn't have to go back to bartending. So I didn't do good in law school because of brilliance. I did good in law school because of fear. I was always going to work my ass off, right? But it was now or never. So the journey's a joke. They don't teach you how to be a lawyer. It's all bullshit. It's a scheme. It's a scam. And if law schools were really going to make good lawyers, what they would do is two things. Teach you how to pass the bar exam and teach you how to practice law. There are two things they're lacking, not just the cool, you probably guess everywhere. The reason why MSU and the University of Michigan have higher bar passage rate than Cooley is because for years they trained their students how to pass the bar. At Cooley, had a bunch of professors giving their version of the law. And many of those professors couldn't survive in the real world. We've tried to hire them when they got fired, and many of them sucked. So these Dean's List parties were a bunch of nobodies who did really well on the Nelson Denny test and kicked ass and won little book awards at Cooley and did their thing. And let me tell you, I have nothing against those people at those Dean's List parties. I'm still friends with many of them. They come in when they need to borrow money. See what I did there? All right. That's it for today. I'm so tired. And Scott Grable won't shut the hell up. I am Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates and the Shiawassee Six. And what we learned today is that just being a bar porter at 18 could be great motivation. Maybe not to be a great singer, but to go to law school. Theater groups at community college are generally bullshit. And those deans list party in law school, you'd be much better off doing some real-world externships. All right, I'm out. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.